Hi, and welcome to Imperial College Africa Business Podcast. My name is Chemeka Okeke, and in this episode, we are delighted to be joined by Adesua, the founder and managing director of Arua Capital Management, a private equity firm in West Africa. She has over 12 years of investment banking and private equity experience from top global institutions and currently sits on three boards in Nigeria. We go on to discuss the gender imbalance amongst capital allocators on the continent, challenges faced as a first-time fundraiser, and potentials of the African investment space. Hi, Adesua. Welcome to the podcast today. Um, It's a pleasure to have you on board. Thank you so much for accepting to speak with us. No problem. Thank you so much for having me, Chiameka. Yeah, as we already know, um, I'm here again with my co-host, Danny. Danny, do you want to say hi? Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today for this fantastic episode. Okay. So, Adesua, not taking so much of your time, we would like to hear your story. Please, can you tell us about your journey, essentially what led you to the entrepreneurial path? I mean, you started out in investment banking, and then you are now like the owner or a co-founder of private equity firm. So what were the series of events that led to this move? Um, Were there any like factors that sort of spurred this decision, or was it something you've already had in mind? Yeah, no, sure. A lot of people ask me that. So as you rightly said, I started my career in investment banking. I was one of these people that knew that I always wanted to do investment banking. Uh, So I did economics in university in Bristol and then uh, got my first internship in my first year of uni, actually, uh, with Lehman Brothers and investment banking. Uh, Then in my third year of uni, I got an internship with JP Morgan and investment banking M&A in London. uh, And I got the offer. But I took a year out. Uh, My parents wanted me to do a master's, but given that I already had the job, uh, I said, no, (laughs) I want to do some work, more work experience. So I worked in that year for a firm called TLG Capital, which is a private equity firm investing in in across Africa. Uh, And it was really during that time at TLG that I started to see how you could make money uh, from investing in Africa, but at the same time, be able to impact society and do good. So did an investment in that time in a local drugs manufacturer in Uganda. They were locally manufacturing anti-malaria and antiretroviral drugs. Uh, and we did an investment and the investment was doing very well, exited at a very attractive return. But at the same time, we were able to see that we were able to provide affordable, genuine drugs in Uganda. We were able to export affordable, genuine drugs across East Africa. So, you know, being able to provide access to, you know, affordable, genuine medication for you know most of the east african population uh, and combining that with also making money so it was the first time that i really saw that in africa you don't have to sacrifice making money for doing good uh, okay. and i kind of had that at the back of my mind as i went back to jp morgan that i want to do something like this kind of as my legacy if you will as kind of what i what i will commit my time to so anyway i went to jp morgan after that year uh, was an MA and then was in leverage finance, uh, completed a number of transactions, uh, you know, did about, uh, worked on about $5.6 billion of transactions in emerging markets in the UK and in the US as well, based in the London office. And I'm sitting at my desk at JP Morgan, and I get headhunted by a private equity firm based in Europe that had about $300 million under management to help them build out their Africa business. So I jumped at that opportunity, obviously, from my time at TLG, this was an opportunity to 
you know, got, come back home to Nigeria and do something the way I could use my skills and track record, but also be part of a, a brand that was already known. Okay. So it was kind of best of both worlds, building the Africa business from scratch, but also being part of a brand with an existing track record and, you know, an existing operational back office, etc. Uh, so anyway, jumped at that and I ran Syntaxis Africa for about five years as the managing partner. I just really got frustrated about, you know, we were fundraising, we were on the road for a, for a fund, but we weren't really getting much traction. And as a woman, uh, as a kind of a, a woman, black woman, African woman, being the managing partner of this fund and being on the road where, you know, we already had an existing track record, it was a very, very clear story. And then seeing a lot of other funds that were mainly male owned being raised without any issue, I kind of thought, well, if I don't see examples of women-owned and women-led private equity funds in the continent that look like me, it's going to be very, very hard for people like me to get funded. So that's when I took the crazy decision that, you know, I want to see more people like me as capital allocators until we have more Black women-owned, African women-owned and led funds, then people will not have success stories to point to that will enable them to invest in more women-owned and Black women-owned funds. So that's when I decided to set up Arua. Uh, A lot of people thought I was crazy at the time. (laughs) Uh, But but for me, I think it was important to have an example of this is what can happen when an African woman is empowered as a capital allocator. Uh, There are less than 10 private equity funds in the whole of Africa that are women-owned and women-run. So we need to be able to change that imbalance of capital allocators, because if we don't change that imbalance of capital allocators, more and more African-owned businesses, women-owned businesses will continue to struggle to get capital. So, yeah, you know, we make up 50 percent of the population. But when it comes to the capital side, you know, only two percent of African women are getting funded. So in order to change that balance, we need more Arua capitals and we need more African, you know, women allocating capital. So that's kind of my story to date is I decided to set up Arua. I'm actually the sole founder of Arua. And, you know, yeah, it's it's really the legacy that I want to be able to leave that people will use Arua as a success story of this is what can happen when women are empowered as capital allocators. And for that reason, we should be investing in more women as capital allocators because I hope I'll be able to play my small role so that other women after me don't have the same challenges that I've had uh, over the last six years uh, of raising capital and, and doing private equity in Africa. Yeah, I think that's really incredible what you've been able to achieve. And I, I mean, I beg to differ. I do not think that it's a small role in any way whatsoever. I think it's really huge. I mean, I was so surprised seeing, I have to be very honest, seeing a lady running a private equity firm in Nigeria, I was like, wow, this must be so much guts and confidence. Well, we are happy to learn from you. So, I mean, we are going to get back to the fundraising processes, like into a little bit more details later on, but then we would like to understand in terms of like the logistics aspect, in terms of like running the business, in terms of like human resources, juggling everything else together. And how has it been navigating the whole ship and navigating the whole company, attracting and retaining talent and all of all this stuff? Yeah, no, it's very challenging because, you know, when you're a soul founder and a sole manager, you know, partner, you're having to juggle everything. You're having to juggle not only fundraising, but also execution of deals, you know, hiring and retaining talent, as you say. Um, So it's very, very difficult, uh, I must say, to be managing all of these work streams at the same time. 
But I think over the years, I've learned to prioritize. And the team that I do have, I, you know, I've managed to have, you know, we're now four at Aurora Capital. The team that I do have are incredibly uh, efficient. <laughs> They're very, very good at, you know, managing the different work streams that they have. Um, so I think, you know, I try and prioritize myself. You know, I, I take each 24 hours as it comes, the day by day. Uh, and I try and prioritize what I need to do within those 24 hours to achieve the objectives that I've set for that day. So I think as you, you know, in this entrepreneur life, you have, you really have to, you know, be able to prioritize and set goals that you want to achieve each day and be very, very strict with your time management. So, you know, I say no to a lot of things, you know, as you become more visible, everyone wants your time, you know, whether it's yeah. other, other fund managers that want to talk to you about, you know, how did you raise money or, you know, or, or whether it's, you know, an investor that wants to talk to you about something. or So you really have to be able to say no and prioritize your time and uh, make sure that whatever you're prioritizing is aligned with that, the objective for that day or for that week. But yeah, it's, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. But I think as you learn to prioritize, as you learn to say no to things that are not relevant, and it's not saying no, just, you know, move it to June, move it to when, you're, when, when you have the time. But I think people are trying to do too much at the same time. So I think it's just learning how to prioritize, you know, it's a, when you're in this business, it's, it's kind of the last bus stop. <laughs> so it's, you're, you're in the business for a long time. So you don't have to try and do everything at once. You can definitely build relationships over time and prioritize your objectives. Yeah, I think that's a very brilliant answer. I mean, in terms of the fact that you've advised that people who want to go on this track, they should learn how to prioritize and as well as managing their time effectively. Yeah, yeah so um, going back to the, the fundraising aspect, right? Because I even just heard you say that even fund managers sort of reach out to you to sort of ask you how you typically raise funds or how you went about raising funds. So we want to um, understand how you were able to go about raising your fund as a first-time fund manager, the challenges you faced, and then especially from your perspective as an African woman. Yeah, sure. So it's very, very difficult. Uh, I think, you know, Aurora Capital is is a growth equity uh, fund, but it's also a gender lens fund. So we invest in businesses that are either providing goods and services to women and help improve women's lives in some way, because we see that as a very untapped market. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it's a $15 trillion market. Uh, being a woman allocating capital, I believe I can identify attractive you know, goods and services that I would use over a man. Uh, and given the fact that, you know, 98.7% of the $69 trillion under AUM is, is being controlled by white men at the moment, I think I have a strong competitive advantage. So my point there is it's a gender lens fund as well as a, a, you know, a typical private equity fund. So we have a number of arrows on our back. You know, the first arrow is, is a first time fund. The second arrow is, is a gender lens, gender fund. lens fund. The second arrow is it's a relatively small fund. So, you know, 20 million. So we're looking at kind of early stage growth businesses, not startups, but early stage growth businesses. And then you have Africa. So when you combine all those risks together and you go and approach institutional investors, it's a very, very steep, steep, steep hill to climb. And then you add the fact that it's being run by a black woman you know, they're typically more comfortable, as we've seen in the data, uh, yeah. allocating capital to men. So, yes, it's a very, very steep hill to climb. You know, women are currently facing a number of issues when it comes to raising capital, uh, unconscious bias, you know, language that is typically used. You know, a male entrepreneur might be described as young and promising, a female <laughs> entrepreneur 
will be described as young and inexperienced. You know, <laughs> uh, a female entrepreneur might be asked, you know, how do you intend not to lose your clients over the next five years? A male entrepreneur will be asked, how are you growing your clients over the next five years? So there's a lot of kind of inherent systemic issues. So the advice I always give to people is start small, leverage your networks, execute, do whatever you can do to just do that first deal, leverage your networks, reach out to people, start small. I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned is you need to start small. It's a long game. As I said, it's the last bus stop. So if you're coming into this and thinking, oh, you just do it for five years and go, it's the wrong industry for you. Uh, it's the last bus stop, you know, I'm, I'm going to be doing this, you know, for the next 40 years until I retire. So start small, uh, leverage your relationships, do that first deal. Because when you start talking about a deal and you have points that you can talk to in a portfolio that validate the investment strategy you're trying to raise capital for, it becomes a very, very different conversation. Um, yeah. So a good thing that put us in, in good stead in the fundraising process is we had a portfolio company to be able to talk to. Uh, a lot of first-time funds go to their investors with a pitch book. <laughs> we went with a pitch book, but an example. So it's like, okay, this is my idea, but let me tell you an example of actually how this is working in reality. Um, so start small, leverage your networks, do that first deal, uh, and just take it step by step. You know, Don't go for the hundred million dollar fund once you know i think that's the lesson that i learned yeah that makes sense thank you so much we're going to ask like if you're going to do anything differently from your experiences do you think you would have done anything differently if you were to start all over again to start raising a fund i wouldn't say i would have done anything differently i think all my experiences have led to where i am now so everything happened so that i could be where i am now so So I wouldn't say I would have done everything differently. I think, you know, God had the plan for it to work out this way. But I would say in terms of lessons learned, uh, I would definitely say that, you know, the advice I just gave about starting small is a lesson that I learned. You know, I remember we had a minimum investment size for our fund of $500,000. COVID hit and, you know, we had to revise that accordingly. So, (laughs) So I think, you know, just being able to adapt you know, to the changing environment around you when it comes to fundraising, being able to be cognizant that, you know, if you're raising from H&Is, it's a different pitch to if you're raising from institutional investors. Depending on the institutional investors you're raising from, it's a different pitch. So just being nimble, adaptable, and don't be too stuck in what you think is the idea of what you want to raise. Be adaptable to the changing environment is what I would say. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, so we'll be moving on to the next bit of this of this podcast. So this part is about like Africa generally. Where do you think the opportunities are in Africa? I mean, I understand that you already run a gender lens and gender focused um fund. We want to know like what you think the where the opportunities are in Africa in terms of your conversations with other investors and other fund managers as well. Yeah, sure. So you know, I think for us, we see a huge opportunity through the gender lens investing strategy as i mentioned uh, it's one that is so untapped you know historically men have been the ones allocating capital so they've missed out in my view on a lot of hidden sectors of the economy so for example our first investment was in a personal hygiene goods business that locally manufactures sanitary pads baby diapers baby wipes you know that business is doing really really well so you know we we think that that segment of goods and services that cater to the growing and rising population of african women 
is one that is a very attractive opportunity. We also believe that import substitution is also an attractive opportunity. I'm sure, as you know, a lot of the things that we use in Nigeria is imported. So as we back more local manufacturers, I think that's a very, very attractive opportunity. And I think what COVID has taught us is we need to build our local capabilities in terms of production capabilities. So so I would say import substitution, consumer goods, you know, Africa has 1.2 billion people that will be doubling over the next 30 to 50 years. So goods and services that are catered to the growing and rapidly urbanizing population is an attractive segment. So essential goods and services to this rapidly growing and urbanizing sector. So, you know, healthcare, financial inclusion, education, these are things that I think will be, if you're thinking about long-term investing in Africa, you have to be thinking about these segments. And that's very much aligned with what we're doing in our fund. We see, we see a lot of attractive opportunities. You know, Africa is really the last frontier for growth. That's what I say to a lot of our institutional investors outside of Africa. Uh, you know, you look at the US, valuations are very, very high and there's no growth. Africa is the opposite. Valuations are very, very low and we have you know, rapid growth. As you invest in Africa as well, it's uncorrelated, um, unlike other emerging markets like Brazil or China, that is yeah. typically correlated to other developed markets. So Africa really provides that diversification strategy for a lot of these institutional investors that are thinking long term for their portfolio as well. Okay. Um, so we thought um, it would be also nice for you to share like challenges that are like prevalent in this space. I mean, we've had the very interesting dynamics and all of the interesting factors and all the pointers as to why Africa should be the next um, focus and all of all that for foreign investors and new investors. But want to know what you think the challenges are, or even from a personal experience, the challenges you have experienced on your own end. Yeah, no, I think that there are numerous challenges with investing in Africa. I would say the main one uh, is currency risk. You know, currency risk is a big, big challenge when investing in, in these markets, I can uh, imagine. as you know. Uh, so, so it's making sure that, you know, you're investing in businesses that are defensible when it comes to that. So whether they're generating a small portion of their revenues in dollars already, you know, we have a couple of those in our portfolio. Or if it's a business that, you know, through import substitution is actually benefiting from a devaluation of the currency. And, more, you know, a lot of the businesses as well are, are rapidly growing. Um, you know, some businesses uh, that we see in our portfolio are growing, you know, 30, 30 percent, 40 percent a year. Wow. Uh, the, the average rate of devaluation in Nigeria anyway has been around 20 percent a year. So you also want to be making sure you're, you're picking businesses that are, are, are outpacing the rate of devaluation in terms of growth. Yeah. Um, so I would say currency risk is a big challenge. Another challenge is, you know, the typical challenges that we have in our countries, you know, regulation, infrastructure risk, political risk. So what I always say to institutional investors is you want to be investing in Africa with a local partner that understands how to navigate these challenges, that under, you know, has a finger on the pulse uh, in the country, in the region, uh, and is, you know, ready to, you know, uh, adapt to the rapidly changing environment based on their own experiences. But, you know, I would say despite these challenges, you know, it still remains a very attractive area for growth. But yes, you have to come in with your eyes wide open. <laughs> it definitely has its own risks uh, and, yeah. its, own and yeah. its own challenges. Yeah. That's great. Thank you so much. So I'm just sort of curious to how you seek out firms that fit your investment criteria, because clearly you are very specific. 
and what we see from a general view from Africa is fintech related. Just to understand how you really go about getting the right firms, do they reach out to you or do you guys kind of source your deals yourself? Just give us like a quick overview on that. Yeah, sure. So I think because we've been in the we've been doing this now for the last six years, we're kind of now known on the ground so we have a lot of firms that reach out to us directly where they reach out to us and you know they want to raise capital uh, people reach out by email directly by linkedin uh, we also have a very good network of advisors that also sometimes send us deals so people typically reach out to us uh, and our investment criteria is it's specific uh, but it's pretty simple it's we want to be looking at businesses that uh, have been in operations for at least two years because we want to see that track record. We want to see that their, their business model is proven. We want to also be investing in businesses that have annual revenues of at least $300,000 to $500,000 because we want to know that, you know, the, the growth capital that they want, they've proven the business model for whatever they want growth capital for. And in line with our gender lens, you know, these are businesses that are either doing two things. They are either providing goods and services to cater to the female economy yeah. Or there are businesses that are founded or led by women or businesses that have gender diverse teams or have women predominantly active in their value chain. So these are really our, you know, the criteria that we use. And then the discipline is for us to make sure that, you know, it's a sound investment case. It meets all of our criteria that we're looking for as we assess investment opportunities uh, in terms of market leadership, high barrier to entry, uh, you know, cash flow visibility, etc., but it also meets our social impact criteria. You know, we, because we are typically providing growth capital, we also want to see some level of job creation from the companies we're investing in. Uh, and then obviously with our gender lens criteria, we want to see women's empowerment throughout the life of our investment period as well. So yeah, the discipline is on us, but I think the good thing is because there is so much demand for growth capital in our space, we have the luxury to really cherry pick uh, what we believe are the best investments. That's good to know. So pretty much I'll say in hindsight, say fund two, you pretty much stick to what your investment is, is it based on, you know, the quality of deals you get in this space? Yes, no, for sure. I don't, I don't, I don't really see our investment thesis changing. Yeah. I think as you get bigger, we'll be expanding regionally. So now we're only Nigeria and Ghana. I hope that over time we'll also be in East Africa and, and other parts of West Africa as well. Oh, great. Thank you so much, Adesua. It's been a pleasure. And I'd like to really say, you know, thank you for choosing to make a difference. It takes a lot to do that. And just before we go, um, in case our listeners want to reach out to you, what would be the best way? Please reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm very good at responding. So please reach out to us. Chiameka is, is, is aware. <laughs> so yes, reach out to me on LinkedIn and, um, uh, and I'll respond. All right, great. Thanks for joining us this week. Um, stay tuned for next week where we'll have another exciting episode. Thank, Thank you, guys. You. Thank, Thank you. you.